BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. So for a long time, I felt that my best ideas come from me when my mind is on idle, when there's literally nothing else I could be doing but being bored. When I'm taking a shower, or brushing my teeth, or falling asleep. I feel like that's when lightning strikes in my creativity. And it turns out there's actually a reason for that. And there's a woman who knows why those reasons exist. And it turns out that woman is really cool. Manoush Zomorodi is a radio host at WNYC and host of the popular podcast Note to Self. Her own jump story is one we'll touch on in the interview. What's more exciting to me is that she'll share with us the astounding links between being bored and taking jumps. In 2005, Manoush ran an experiment called Bored and Brilliant on her own podcast. And what they did was they tracked how taking technology out of their lives can help them with things like being creative, having original thoughts, being less anxious and worrying a little bit less as well. And she received a bunch of ideas and testings and data and records and experimentations around how we can separate from technology and how we can let ourselves be a little bit more bored. From all of those experiments, Manoush distilled down the learnings that she has found and the ways that we can help ourselves be bored and what that means for things like, oh, I don't know, taking a jump. All of these things felt a little hocus pocus to me until I actually tried them myself. And I'm not saying my life has changed, but I have been a little bit more bored lately. And I think that's a good thing, as we'll find out here. So enjoy the conversation. And of course, let yourself be bored. But maybe after you listen. I'm joined by Manoush Zamarodi. That was good. You said it right. <laughs> <laughs> that was the hardest part of, yeah, the, exactly. of the show. Uh, Manoush hosts Note to Self, a podcast about how technology is changing our brains, lives, and society. Maybe in that order. Yes. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Prior to joining WNYC, Manoush reported and produced around the world for BBC News and Thomson Reuters. And her new book, Bored and Brilliant, explores how spacing out can actually unlock your most creative and productive self. Very, very interesting. Manoush, mm-hmm. thank you for joining me. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So let's start back a little bit. Tell yeah. me about working as a journalist at BBC News and Thomson Reuters. Yeah. Um, how did you end up on that path? And, oh. and that sounds so cool and sexy to say. It does, you know, right? It does sound way glamorous and cool and interesting. And honestly, what it was, it was like the mid-90s and... I don't know what I thought I was going to do. I was going to school in Washington, D.C., and um, and my first boyfriend was a Brit, and so I kind of had, like, a Brit obsession, and my, my parents aren't American, so I was like, you know what? And literally, I looked in the phone book, and I called the BBC's Washington, D.C. bureau, and I said, um, I, I'm going to come be your intern. And they were like, what's an intern? And I was like, so I show up and I work for you for free. And they were like, oh, well, that sounds pretty good, actually. Okay. <laughs> and I'm not joking you. Like, that's how it kind of started. And um, and then I graduated from college after interning there and um, 
I went, still wasn't really sure what I was going to do. So I just kind of stayed. And they had an opening for a job. And they didn't have a lot of money to pay. So they could hire a 22-year-old who had no idea what she was doing but was, you know. And then I stayed and I ended up traveling across the country. I covered the 96 elections, the 2000 elections. I ended up in Berlin, Brussels, spent, you know, jumping around a little bit in the Middle East, not a ton but some. And it was super exciting. It was also really, really, really exhausting. Um, I, I was... By the end, I was traveling four out of seven nights a week. And um, and it was one of those things, you know, the Concord has crashed. Can you go right. now? Uh, so I really didn't have much of a life. <laughs> my life was my work. And for a while, that was really great. But then I was like, okay, loser <laughs> who has no friends and wants to have a family. How am I going to do this? Yeah, it's it's funny. I think of... When I was playing professional squash, it was the coolest thing to tell people. And then at some point, you're like, well, I'm running out of money. Yes. I'm cooking eggs in my buddy's apartment. Uh I'm on the couch. Like, I can get the mail when it comes because, oh, I'm here. It's 2 (laughs) o'clock in the afternoon. And so there's like this very fine line you tread almost like, okay, is this when I'm supposed to start moving on? Getting to that next point for you. Yeah. You you. You land in what, I mean, tell me a little bit about getting to WNYC and what sounded like, in many ways, it sounds like your dream job. Um, And then starting note to self, like how did all that come about? I think that's, it's a remarkable pivot into something that we all, again, look at and say, geez, how does someone like that get there? Right. And let's keep in mind that this was a jump that had many little jumps in between. I think people, a lot of the time, I think people are like, whoa, how'd she do that? And you're like, no, no, no. That was like a decade in the making. So in between, you know, honestly, for me, it was 9-11 happened. I had sort of an epiphany of, I think, as many people did, which is like, I want to be living living the way I really, truly feel I need to be living. And for me, that meant stopping um, the travel, constant travel. Um, and it also, I was sort of on a course to become a bureau chief, news bureau chief. And I just was like, you know what? I don't want to be woken up by panicked calls every day. It's not how I want to live my life. And sure enough, within six months of taking myself off that track, I met the man who became my husband. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, that's the way it works, <laughs> it's right? The when way you it works. open your mind, like suddenly, I don't know, you're sending out signals to the world. Um, and then I had two kids, and I was a freelance journalist and. And really what I thought I was going to do was consulting, I, which sounds so boring to me. But what I was doing, it was at the moment when nonprofits were realizing that they could create their own podcasts and videos and do their own media. They didn't need to go through journalists. So I was going into places like Human Rights Watch and helping their researchers be journalists, essentially, reporting their own stuff, which was kind of great. But what I didn't realize is that when you're a consultant or a teacher, you have to repeat yourself a lot. And I get really really sort of I hate repeating myself I don't find it very interesting so I was like oh maybe I don't want to do this Um, and then I had this lunch I went out to lunch with a friend who was the business editor here at WNYC this is like in 2011 or 2012 and I was like man you got to be covering the tech scene more in New York City he's like oh yeah well why don't you cover the tech scene for us I was like fine I will so literally, that's how it no happened. Way. Yeah, swear to God. And he was like, okay, so just let's figure this out. How about you do a little weekly spot on what's happening in the tech world in New York City? So I started doing it really just on a lark. I didn't think I'd go back into journalism. And the station was like, actually, we kind of like how you sound. And we're trying to get into pod more into podcasts. And we need more women. So how about you turn it into a show? 
Um, and so it took a long time to sort of figure out what the purpose of the show was, what the sound of the show was, what I sounded like when I wasn't reporting, but when I was just kind of myself hanging out and um, talking about the things I was very interested in. Yes, with facts and research sure. behind it, but less as like BBC News, New York, you know, <laughs> less like that and yeah. more just myself, which is what podcasts are, of course. Um, so it took a while, but then we ended up in, I think, a pretty – and podcast exploded. So it all sort of happened over the last three, four years, and um, and Note to Self turned turn, – and, and the book came out of that too. Yeah, and I want to get to the book, and, and that's where we're going with this. But just to hold on to that point for a second, some of the things we talk about in our When to Jump community all the time mm. and that I spend a lot of focus on in the book uh, is – in, in my book, I guess there's lots of books going around, but uh, is this idea that in between the aspirational messaging we see in society, like yeah, go go start a podcast, yeah. go go write a book, and then the end result of a great podcast and a and a best-selling book, there are these what I call ten thousand unsexy steps. Oh, completely, yes. And some of them you just mentioned, and you made a point to mention. Um, and then there's this aspect that sounds like from your story where you just you got lucky, like you you were at <laughs> lunch and. And you were there. And I think a lot of people say, oh, geez, how lucky for you to have that opportunity. But it seems like the other little unsexy steps provided that. Is that fair to say? I mean, I think it's based all on relationships, right? I mean, this person I went out to lunch with, how did I know him? I knew him from 10, 15 years earlier and we'd stayed in touch and actually we're roommates for a little while. And, you know, quality people are quality people and you want to keep those quality people in your life and not just because they can help you get up in your career, but because there's a reason why you connected in some way. And and that is a that can keep giving, you know what I mean? I think as you go on, I, I know there are these I can a bunch of faces are flashing in my mind right now. These certain people who you just whenever you pick up with them, it goes back. It's like you've picking up on the last conversation you had, whether that was last week or five years ago. And those, I think, are people you want to, if, if there's something simpatico, check in with them because they get you in some way. Those those special people that maybe you don't talk to them all the time, but they're, you saw each other for real, you know? So I'm thinking those people are the tiny steps. I'd say that other steps are, um, for honestly, Mike, for me, it was when I didn't, I didn't care. Like, on, I, I, there was a moment where I was like, ah, sure, I'll do it. Whereas before I'd been like, I must do this. Yeah. I will achieve. Yeah. You know what, what I mean? What does this look for my yes, resume? Yes, yeah. exactly. No, this was like, all right, fine. Yeah. And it felt, felt like, you know, the less I cared, the better I had been, which is a hard lesson to learn as a very type A person. You think the harder you try, the better you do. For me, it was like the less I tried, the better I did. It was no. like, come on, man. Like, but really, when I just relaxed a little, that's when things started to flower and blossom and sort of when I let myself just enjoy the process a little more, I got better at it. I don't know. That sounds like a sports analogy to me. Tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> well, in the world of professional squash. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that's true. I mean, you can just be in tennis. They call it being too tight. You're too, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're just so flexed and every little joint is moving towards something. You can't just let things happen. Uh-huh. There's a great book from Mickey Singer uh, called The Surrender Experiment. Basically, this guy's life was spent letting go of things he just huh. said, I can't control. Um, not to say that he wasn't ambitious and proactive and yes. type A like everyone here in New York is, but uh, there are things you just have to let happen, which it seems like happened for you. Yes. Or this idea that, um, I don't know, there's like the Zen proverb, which is like if you um, are holding a ball and you're, you know, squeezing it and squeezing it, you have to keep holding the ball so it doesn't fall out of your hand. But if you just turn your palm uh, so it faces up, 
you can open your fingers and the ball will just lie there. So once I stopped grasping, or I think the kids call it thirsty, is another <laughs> word that they use. Um, then it then it got easier. And um, and honestly, I think for me having kids, um, I didn't have time to overthink it. Like I had kids who whenever I got home at the end of the day, they kicked my butt, like bedtime and bath time, and they needed me, and they didn't care what I had accomplished that day. And so that makes you a much more efficient thinker, too. There's no time to there's overthink no time. it. Yeah. No, you, you, there's children here. Come on yeah, now. There's a, yeah, exactly. And and that that brings us to, to getting towards this point of, of what the epiphany was that sparked mm. this book. And so you describe, it sounds like there was a specific moment there was. in one of these uh, kind of running around crazy, busy thinking where you got stuck. Yeah. What, what happened? Um, and maybe was it during that time when the, the kids were yeah. there? And it was when busy? my first one was born and he was the most miserable baby. He was so colicky. Um, and he was actually born three weeks uh, before the iPhone is what I like to say. So the iPhone comes <laughs> out. I'm still pushing. Um, this baby would not sleep without me walking and pushing a stroller. Oh and I couldn't stop. Like if you stopped, he'd start screaming. So it was just walking and walking and walking. And, of course, what do you do when you walk? You kind of space out. And I was so tired and out of it. Um, and I now uh, fast forward a few years later and my kid's older and I have a smartphone and I'm running around and I got this show and it's all super exciting. And then I had this moment where I was like, oh, ah, I don't have any ideas right now. I had this like blankness like one day I went, I literally sat down to like, OK, what do I want to cover? OK, uh, and there was nothing there. And I was like, what the hell is my problem? When did I have my best ideas in the past? And I really I went back to those horrible, now in retrospect, <laughs> wonderful days of pushing this stroller for miles and miles and miles and letting my mind wander and go and being bored to tears. And But actually, that's when I started to think through like how I wanted, what I wanted my life to look like. Um, and so... And I was like, well, what's different now? And the difference now was every time I could have been bored or spacing out, I was looking at my phone, which I think a lot of, you know, yeah. you wait oh, totally. in line for coffee, you look at your phone, uh, go to you, the bathroom. you go to the bathroom, you take your phone. I know it's yeah. gross, but we all do yeah. it. But so it turns out that by filling all these little cracks in your day, you are missing out on something. And so I went on this sort of dive into like what's happening in our brains when we space out and we get bored. And it turns out that when we get bored, we activate a network in our brain called the default mode. The default mode is when you're, you know, you're literally lying or lounging, your body's not doing anything, or you're like folding the laundry and you're not really thinking. It's an automatic sort of thing. What about like taking a shower? I always hear shower, taking a shower. Perfect default mode place. Yeah. Perfect. So what happens is actually you're still using 95% of your brain's capacity at that point. And you start to do a very particular kind of thinking. You start to do something called autobiographical planning. This is when you look back at what you've achieved in your life so far, where you've been, you start to do something called prospective bias. This is looking forward into the future, imagining, literally, some people call it the imagination network. You start to think, well, where do I want to be? How can I draw conclusions from where I've been to where I want to get to? How do I set myself small goals, make steps that I can can achieve to get to where I want to go? It's, it's original thinking. It's creative thinking. It's combining two ideas that you never would have thought would have anything and exploding them into new ideas. And so at first you're like, well, what's the big deal? You're checking Instagram is fine, right? 
No, actually, it is a big deal because if you're missing out on activating your default mode, you're missing out on planning your life, essentially, is what we're saying. And so it, it sounds kind of strange, but what I challenged people to do in this week a week of experiments that we did with our listeners, 20,000 of them, we tried to rethink how we used our phones to see if we could get bored again and then see what happened. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And this is so fascinating. And this, this ended up leading to the book. Exactly. Uh, and so what were, what, were, what were the findings? What were you expecting and, and what happened instead? Well, I thought, you know, I was like, okay, a couple hundred people are going to sign up to do this, you know, a couple hundred weirdos like me. <laughs> but it, tens of thousands of people signed up. Oh, my gosh. And um, we had a an amazing week where I thought people would say like, it was cool. You know, I, I, I don't know. I wrote a poem or something like that. But what we had was people come to us and say, I got a new idea for a business. I finally finished writing my book. I figured out a way how to solve a problem at work. Kids who were saying, um, I, schoolwork has become immensely easier for me. Well, yeah, if you're not doing Facebook at the same time. Yeah, it turns out. Right, exactly. Yeah. Or, um, one guy said to me, it's my favorite quote. He said, um, I feel like I'm waking up from a mental hibernation. Just this sense that they had to go to this place where they were bored, where they were frustrated, where they were a little bit angry. And then once they passed through that, something happens. There is a if you give yourself the time, which we don't do anymore, because the minute we feel that yucky feeling, we, we go to our phone. Right. The minute we feel it, we're like, I don't have to be bored. I've got this thing. But if you let yourself pass through that sort of yucky moment, there's a space there. And that space is where your brain starts to do the harder, deeper work and really tries to figure it all out for you. And only how you can do it. No one else. This is this is a very solitary, very personal sort of thing. And if you give yourself the chance, you will, you will figure out solutions. Now, some of us, when we get bored, we let our minds wander and we ruminate, right? Like, I'm such an idiot. I should have gotten that promotion or I'll never get the funding. I'll never, never, never right. get it. You know, <laughs> we all do this. Yeah. But if you can coach yourself to do something that's called positive constructive daydreaming, it is just like it sounds. It's positive. You are thinking about um, ways to achieve and it's constructive. It's very specific things that you can do to achieve the things that you vision. That's amazing. And so you get this amazing feedback. You get all this participation. One of the best parts, I think, of your show is that people really feel this connection to the others that are listening, to yeah. you who's doing it as well. And and you start to draw conclusions and, and actually a roadmap. And that's that seems like right. one of the facets of the book is to say, hey, while it's nice to do this and yeah, that's that's high and mighty to turn your phones off, but I'm working, so mm -hmm. screw off. Mm -hmm. There's actually a way you can start to do this in your life. And there's actually little steps you can take. What are some of the findings you've, you had? Yeah. So what we did was we broke it down into different steps that you can take. So ideally, you take a week, right? And every day you try what we call a challenge, right? So day one, for example, is put it away. Keep it in your pocket. Don't. Don't look at it while you are in transit. So, you know, if you're a stay-at-home mom, in transit might be from the nursing chair to the kitchen. You know, there's some people who can't go anywhere without their phone. I had this one woman say, like, I I'm not traveling. I'm sitting on the couch and nursing. And we're like, dude, your commute is to the kitchen. That's fair. For other people, it's, um, it's you know, if you're... I if you you know if you're in New York, you see people walking around gripping their phones. They're not even on their phone, but they could be at any moment if they needed to be. So we're just saying, you know, put it put it away, put it away, and try to like let yourself just sort of walk down the street 
and um and and see what happens. Maybe nothing. Maybe but but maybe you'll also get even if you don't have an epiphany while you're walking to the office, you will likely feel less frazzled and calmer when you do get there to the office. So very simple steps. And I think what it is, is there specific steps. And it's what a lot of listeners said was it was giving you permission. Yes, It was saying, no, you don't have to be on your phone all the time. In fact, you are a better uh, employee or a better thinker or you're doing better by yourself by not being on your phone for this discrete amount of time. And so I think it's not, you know, it's not rocket science, but it's specific, it's clear, it's giving you permission, and then it's asking you to observe your own behavior. Got it. And so that, I think that's so key to have a very clear call to action. And I think for the other steps in this week of taking, you know, your phone offline and and separating a little bit, they should read the book. Yes. But is that a good first step for our community to say, hey, okay, Manoush's call to action is, for one day, as you commute to work or go home or wherever you're going, put your phone somewhere else. Maybe yeah. that's a good start. I right? think so. Yeah. It's one of the, the first of the 10,000 unsexy steps to Yes, ex- that's exactly right? right. And you know what? If you like it, this is my new thing that I've been doing is um, I now run without listening to anything. I probably shouldn't say that as a podcaster. But I find <laughs> that like the first half mile sucks and I am like, <gasps> oh my God, I'm breathing really hard. I think my, oh, this is horrible. Why am I doing this to, my, to myself? And then suddenly at around like 0.7 miles, my feet turn into a rhythm and my breathing turns into a rhythm and I start spacing out and I lose track of time. And I'm sure it has to do with exercise too. Definitely, yeah. But I do carry my phone because I have some of my best ideas, big ideas while I'm doing that. So I do jot them down Isn't as that amazing? I go. And, and it's so funny because I, a friend told me this about meditation where everyone says, oh, I can't get into it. Well, of course, those first five or 10 minutes are the most difficult yes. because your reaction is get back online, get back to it. And it's almost like by definition, the people that should be running without their their phone on or without music or (laughs) meditating are the people that can't get away from it, right? Completely. If you're one of those people who can just turn off their phone, great. Um, That's a wonderful thing. But look around you. Chances are you have a uh, a child around you or a friend or a spouse who is struggling. And, And it's not their fault because I would say that the way that these things are being, you know, people are like, oh, it's just like when people got TVs. It's not actually just like when people got TVs. These things are designed to hold your attention, to distract you, to keep you looking at them. Yep. That is the business model. Your eyes, your attention is the business model. And so the, the deck is stacked against you. And so we have to be uh, smarter consumers, more educated consumers, and also say to ourselves, I deserve to take this time away. And in fact, it's better for me, not just emotionally, but uh, professionally. As we think of the When to Jump community and even the first phase of what I call the jump curve, which Mm. is coming out in my book, it talks about, um, you know, really how you have to listen to that little voice Mm -hmm. in your head. And I think there's such a clear parallel to what you're describing Mm -hmm. in that you can't really listen to the voice unless you give yourself that space to be bored and have that voice come to you. What what are some of the voice gets squeezed out so easily? It sounds like it's that five percent that you want to make up for in Instagram time. Yeah. Yeah. What you know, what? What findings would you have for our listeners and our audience who's trying to maybe think of that idea, but, you know, they're not getting anywhere on it or they're too busy. That's always, you know, I'm just yeah, too busy yeah, yeah. To, to dedicate time. 
Is there anything they can do from your research uh, to kind of give themselves that space to hibernate on a, uh, and really come up with, with a jump to make and a, and a voice to listen to? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's simple things which I think a lot of people are learning to do right now, which is, you know, turn off all notifications. They are – it's – it's Satan calling you when you get notifications. <laughs> I swear, when I'm ever I'm having like a poignant moment with a kid, that's when my phone pings or something. The distraction is detrimental to getting anything done. I think when when w- the first idea you have is never where the answer is. Exactly. Right? Yeah. It's always when you think, well, that's an interesting idea. I think I'll go on from that. But what if I did that? Go on from there. Go on from there. Um, I won't give it away, but the the last. Um, challenge that we have in the book is precisely this and i'll give you a hint we we get you to watch a pot of water come to boil because literally that's what some people need is they need an activity that will bore them to tears in order to let their minds go because we're so not used to just sitting around and like looking at a wall and and just thinking things through um, and so I would just say, like, give yourself time and permission. And if that means that you have to write down from 7 to 7.15 p.m., I will be bored. It, do it. If that, that's, yeah, do it. And when you do that, you've seen from your sample size mm-hmm. of your, your project experiments, people are able to actually make real changes in their life. People are able to jump by letting themselves be bored in that 15-minute period. It starts with just that little kernel. I, I mean, it was funny. So after when we did the original project, we also partnered with apps that measured how much time we spent on our phones and how many pickups a day we did. You know, that weird, you know, you get into an elevator, you look at your phone, you walk out of the elevator, you look at your phone. So I was like, based on like the feedback I was getting, I was like, this is amazing. I had like over 120 pickups a day. I was like, I'm going to be down to like 10 pickups a day. And then we got the, (laughs) the data back at the end of the week and we had shaved off collectively. This was so sad to me. Six minutes a day. Oh, my God. The average person had shaved off six minutes. And I was like, well, what? That that stinks. Like, we barely achieved anything. And I went back to the neuroscientists and the cognitive psychologists. And I was like, we this didn't work. And they were like, they literally laughed at me. <laughs> they were like, uh. They were like, do you know how difficult it is to change an ingrained behavior or oh habit within six days? What is way more important than the numbers that you have are the stories, this sense that people feel empowered over their technology, that it goes back uh, to being a tool rather than a taskmaster, that your phone doesn't set the agenda for you, that you set the agenda and that you turn it back into something that improves your life rather than runs your life. That is where the the breakthrough can be. And so, you know, if there is one time where someone's about to take a picture of a sunset and they say, actually, you know what, I'm just going to enjoy it and just sit here. I mean, that's a win, right? It's these little changes in our in our daily behaviors that can make us more reflective, make us more clear about where we want to go and make, help us figure out how we get there. Incredible. And have you seen, do you have any off the top of your head stories of people that, that, that were able to actually, you know, something different happened when they started to, to put into practice some of these ideas? Well, the most interesting stories I got were from kids, really, like oh, teenagers. Wow. Um, so I, I, there were a bunch of classrooms, uh, mostly high school and college classrooms, who did, they did it as a group. And there was this one class where uh, the teacher said to me, the kids were like, great, we're going to do this as a class. Awesome. And they were really dreading it. But he said what he saw was so interesting in that they started to have, as the week went on, more eye contact with each other, which sounds, you think, like, oh, wait, they weren't 
looking at each other before? And no, they actually weren't <laughs> looking at each other before because not just because um, they were allowed to have phones part of the time in classroom, not all of the time, but today's classrooms are so mediated by screens. So they're on their laptops or they're looking something up or they're staring at the smart board that everybody's looking at. There's very little time to actually look each other in the eye and explain uh, why you feel a certain way, have to defend um, your thought process or even just look at each other and feel a little uncomfortable, right? What do they have? They have a curated Instagram or funny Snapchats where the filter is put on right. There's very, there's less and less of that pure sort of mammalian human <laughs> interaction. And so that that's that's how we start to have human understanding and empathy and and conversation, right? So I think for me, it was this idea of kids saying, oh my God, I had never felt this emotion before. Like they'd never been bored. Because if you were born, um, if you're 14, your whole, of course, smartphones, you can't remember a time before smartphones. So if they don't know what being bored even is, and I'm introducing them to a new human emotion, and they're thinking like, this is weird and uncomfortable, but actually really interesting. Like that's that's crazy to me that there are these human emotions that you and I as people over a certain age take for granted. But actually because of all the technology, uh, I think there are other emotions that actually this next generation will not even know. And maybe we will have to teach to them that this, this was something that we used to have. We don't have it anymore because we have these gadgets, but it's actually really important. So we're going to make sure it's part of your curriculum or whatever. Wow. Crazy, yeah. right? Oh, absolutely. And I, uh, you know, I, I think back to a, a piece of advice a, a mentor of mine gave me before I left the corporate world and packed up and moved to New Zealand. He said, listen, I know you're trying to plan everything because that's the other tendency I feel like is for me, a byproduct of checking my phone is to be like, I'm on top of it. And mm -hmm. uh, there's yes. a piece in the New York Times called The Busy Trap several mm -hmm. years back where it was all about why it sounds good to say you're busy, mm -hmm. not just for yourself, but you want to be looked at as, oh, Mike's got his stuff under control. You know, Manoush knows her life is set because she's got this and this and this and this. So you schedule all this stuff. Yeah. And what he said to me was so, it, it stuck with me, and this is now five, six years ago, but it's it's so simple. He was like, you know, your adventure you're going to go on. And for me, it was to go play pro squash. For you, it might have been to start note to self. And yeah. You know, for anyone else, it can be anything. But he was like, you know, when you when you think of planning, think of it as as creating a ladder. And the rungs of the ladder uh -huh. are the concrete goals, milestones, the things that you have to have in front of you or else you're just wandering, which isn't always bad. But you have to have some sort of guidepost. But don't try to fill in that space in between. Oh, that's good. I like that. Embrace that. And I think that's it sounds like what what you're getting at with with your movement and with your book is is that we shouldn't run from that that openness. I think it's so easy to be caught up in the details or the places where you can definitely step because it feels good and it feels comfortable and you know that you're steady there. But I think, you know, that space in between the latter rungs, just to run with the metaphor here, it's a little scary. Your foot might, like, you know, huh. when you go to try to get the next one, exactly. you don't quite know where you're going to go, right? There's sometimes you have, like, a miss. Yeah, but you have to go there in order to keep going up because otherwise you're just walking down the street instead of climbing a ladder. Just take that metaphor or keep going with it. <laughs> and you can't jump because you're walking down a street. And exactly. You can't. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, I, I, that's taken me a long time to learn that, this idea of playing the long game and saying, like, 
the what the point is that you are crafting the life that you want to live, and and there might be lots of different ways that you get there. But just keep your eye on, on on the ultimate prize. And guess what? You might change your mind. Like that's okay too. You know, I thought I was gonna go. I didn't think I'd get back into journalism. Like I thought I was gonna jump one way, and then I ended up jumping back to where I had been because. Like life, like things change, like the media world changed in a way that was better suited to me, which was more relaxed, um, more welcoming to women, more welcoming to women with strange names. You know what I mean? Like things, the circumstances changed. And what I thought was a place where I wasn't going to thrive changed in a way that was was extremely welcoming, I found. And podcasting became a thing. And that, that was actually a really good fit for me. So I, I think, God, life just keeps getting more interesting, is what it feels like. <laughs> and, and, and I think that's such an important way to tie this together in your own story and of, of your own jumps is that you went through a lot of unsexy steps. Mm. You you faced the failure, those tough mornings, those sleepless nights. You you woke up every day and you, you started to, to lay the bricks towards what you enjoyed doing, telling stories, reporting on the news. And- and yes, that jump changed, but because of the planning, it doesn't sound like you regretted making making any of those jumps. I don't think so. I mean, I feel like a little bit. It was. It's weird because when I first was in broadcast journalism, I was like the golden kid, girl. You know, like always the youngest type A producer. Coolest last name. Yeah, right. Yeah, last 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 name. Um, <laughs> and then now I feel like I'm a late bloomer a little bit, and having like really found where my place is in a way. I don't know. Maybe that's just me coming to grips with my midlife crisis. I'm not really sure, but um, I don't know. I think for me, it's like if you, I'm not much on, and my husband will tell you, I'm not like when he's like, I just have a gut feeling. I'm like, oh, oh here comes your gut, you know? <laughs> but actually, I do think that when you know that something is right or like that it's, like with the boredom thing, I was like, something is not right here. And my mind just kept coming back to it and back to it and back to it. And then when I started talking to people, like a few people like looked at me and they were like, I know, I hate that. And like, I don't know, I just, it, it was a gut, I just knew it was the right thing to do. I, I don't get that feeling very often, but when it comes, I'm like, yeah, this is the one, I gotta, it just, but but it, like, it goes back to that little voice that you were talking about. Sure. If you're so busy, you know, whatever, updating spreadsheets, the little voice is gonna be like, I'll just be quiet. Yeah. You know? No, totally. There's a quote in the uh, one of the folks we interviewed in this project, Jeff Arch, who wrote Sleepless in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And he was a karate school manager who also had a child who suffered from colic Ugh. and was up late one night. And it was because of that boredom of rocking his kid to sleep where he heard that voice. And he said, if that little voice is always right, why is it so little? Yeah, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good right? point. And but but it's but first you have to hear it. And mm-hmm. I think that's. That's something your your project seems to tackle is how do we get back to listening to it, wherever that voice may lead you. And that's an interesting way to put it because my little voice is louder now, and I think it's because it knows it's going to be heard. It speaks up more often. It's It's gotten a little bit of like it has a, it, it trusts itself a little bit more. And then once you trust it and you, you see that, you know, like the book worked out, people were really into the project. They really felt um, that we we did this together. It was very, then I was like, well, let's do another one. So we did another project and that was, you know, even more people. And you start to think, 
Okay, yeah, I can do this. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like when you started winning squash matches, I guess you must have been like, all right. Well, correction, I don't think I won many squash matches, but I tried very hard in a lot of squash matches. But you, sh- but you were respectable yes. on the court. And like, I think just showing that like you deserve to be there or whatever, or you can hold your own. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and for me, it was, it was a visualization piece. And every hmm. morning I wake up, and it's usually in the shower, but... Um, but when I'm traveling, I'll be on an airplane or wherever. I can mm-hmm. find 10 minutes. And I visualize, uh, well, one, what I'm grateful for. So that's more just reflection. But then the the visualization piece is, you know, what am I here to do? What am I doing now? Mm-hmm. And really dreaming big, you know, whether it's with the book that's coming out, whether mm-hmm. it's with um, this podcast, whether it's with the festivals we throw. I just try to imagine the biggest success because what I realize is if you if you really believe it yourself, mm. it's going to eventually just happen. <laughs> you, you're going to wake up one day. I say this in the book. It's like when I wanted to leave finance and become a squash player, I just I cut out all of the bad foods. I started training more, but I woke up every morning and I was like, I'm a squash player and I have to go to this job for 10 hours or 12 hours a day, but I'm a squash player. And then one day you wake up and it's like, I of course I'm a squash player. You almost have to, you, you keep saying it to yourself, but you believe it. And so I think having that spot where you can turn off the phone, whether it's in the subway or whether you're walking to work, and, and really believe what you want to be going to do, it sounds so cheesy. But if you don't believe that, no one's going to believe that for you. And I would say we are in a very privileged position to be able to eat clean food and turn off our phones. I know there are a lot of people yes. out there that this is not even an option. And I think um, that's our job as people who have the luxury to be able to make choices like this. We need to help other people. Um, understand their potential too and make it possible for them to have basic education and um, you know pay the bills so that they can all don't make me say Oprah's be your best self but I I do think there's something to that yeah definitely I really appreciate the time I know how busy you are with the book coming out yeah no it's fun Um, to talk about so to a fellow jumper yeah well exactly (laughs) and and I think there's just the corollary so clear of what happens when you're bored and where that can take your voice what what does a jump look like when you listen to it Uh, I think I certainly appreciate hearing your insights and the book is chock full of them your podcast shares the light on it the community is so powerful so um, I personally just appreciate you taking the time, and I'm sure our audience feels the same way. And if there's more we want to learn and more we want to you know, absorb on absorbing less and turning your phone off, yes. what, we, where should we go? What do we do? You can go to boredandbrilliant.org. Uh, we have book information there. I'm on touring around the country, um, other ways to stay up to date. And, of course, there's the podcast, which you can get links to as well. It's called Note to Self. It comes from WNYC Studios. Amazing. And one last question, which I like to end on with Uh-oh. our guests. Yes. Not very hard. It's actually something we've covered a little bit. But as you've jumped a few times and now you're inspiring future jumpers and current jumpers through being bored, what what does that voice that's not so little, mm. what does it say to you when you wake up in the morning? Oh, it says, gosh, it's early. But if you don't have this, I've been waking up early, early because I need, what I've realized is my little voice needs a little bit of quiet time before kids and all the rest of it it says gosh it's early but it's worth it let's get up let's just like think and do some exercise and have a little quiet time because then you're going to make it through the rest of the day amazing (laughs) thank you so much manu somorodi from wnyc new york author of bored and brilliant thank you hope you enjoyed the conversation with manoush zomorodi this week on the when to jump podcast 
What I'm hoping to do with the podcast is to share the jumps going on right now across our When to Jump community from listeners like you everywhere. Just in the last week, we heard of stories coming into the website from as far away as Amman, Jordan, to Cape Town, South Africa, to Charlotte, North Carolina. If you've got a jump to share, send a voice note describing your jump to when to jump podcast at mcmillan.com. That's when to jump podcast, all one word, at mcmillan, M-A-C-M-I-L-L-A-N.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at when to jump and tweet or comment to let us know what you thought of this week's episode with Manoush Zomorodi. I'm Mike Lewis, and I'll see you next week. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.